to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library. Three games at a time. Usually we play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. That's pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero, uh, back once again from the land of not having an internet connection for several weeks. So I am back, we are back, and I am so happy about that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, just between you not having internet and me starting a new job, it's it's been a little rough these past couple of weeks, but we are, we are back. We are planning on keeping this going. We're planning on keeping our boat afloat, which is... Uh, apropos for today because we've got a very nautical themed episode today we really do it's funny how that works out that way sometimes but yes we've got a submarine game and we've got a pirate ship game possible pirate ship game yep, we got a we got one of them boat games one of them boat games we got we got them here today so that is the back half of january 1993 i'm excited to get to that but we have something to do before we get to that what are we doing steampunk link we still have to do right by our guests from a few episodes ago, uh, Willie and Ginger from the Grand Rapidians Play Games podcast, who uh, very kindly guested on our show to give us some pointers on the list. And we took a couple of those into consideration, deciding that, you know, maybe a few of these did deserve a second look and a re-evaluation. So those three games are Cubert 3, which is currently sitting at 109 on our list. Uh, a little bit higher up, we've got Super Smash TV at 50 and Rampart at 52. Those two games, uh, we mostly decided ought to be re-examined uh, just because they are at their best when played co-op or you know played with the second player. We have not been able to do that because of COVID and everything else going on. So we decided, you know what, we're just gonna we're just gonna wing it anyway. But we are gonna reevaluate those games, and I, I think we're gonna start with Cubert Three down at the bottom. This one does not require two players. This is just a one player game, or if it is two player, it's alternating. So I'm I'm gonna be honest. I don't think this one goes up too much higher. My initial kind of um, a major complaint about Cubert Three. I thought it played fine. I thought it was a decent version of Cubert. Um, you know, that 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 sort of design, uh, you know, I don't think has really changed very much by this game. My main issue with it was that I just found it just aesthetically unappealing, just very, very ugly and hard to look at with a lot of bright, busy patterns and ugly sprite art. And going back to it, I do think I was too hard on the game. I think that if you like the gameplay of Cubert, this game actually has quite a bit to offer. You know, it has a, a number of different stage layouts, certainly a lot of levels, and, you know, that that is all great. Unfortunately, going back to this game was also a reminder that I just don't really enjoy the gameplay of Cubert itself all that much. So I can respect it better for, for what it is, but I still don't enjoy what that is as much as, as I think, I believe it was Willie who, who recommended we re, re-examine this game. People have their individual tastes. That is great. Uh, but this one is just really not terribly to my taste. So here's where I come down on it. I also do not have a lot of love for Cubert as a franchise. I don't have that experience of, of that being, you know, like the big draw at, at arcades or anything like that. I was hitting the arcade scene a little bit later that, or 
Yeah, a little bit later on than Qbert would have been relevant in arcades for the most part. I don't have a problem with the visuals in this game. I, I actually kind of enjoyed the psychedelic visuals a little bit on second watch. I'm okay with that. My big problem with Qbert, it, it's a fine game. It's a simple arcade game. Nothing wrong with that. But it, it almost demands a controller where the directionals are oriented diagonally. I just do not think this game works on an orthogonal D-pad like the SNES controller has. If this thing had like its own proprietary controller that you could plug into the SNES, that'd be great. I think I'd have a much better time with it, but I just cannot for the life of me wrap my head around using the standard D-pad for the movements in this game. It just does not do it for me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I think that this movement never feels natural with this controller. It always feels awkward, and I always have to keep consciously thinking about it in order to not make the wrong moves. And that just is not fun. It's stressful in a way the game does not intend to be. There, there was a real upper limit on how much fun I was able to have with this game. But I think we can still move it up. I will say this, like the absolute ceiling for me would be Super Ghouls and Ghosts at 101. I don't think there's any way you could say that this is a better game than that. 100% agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll start there and we'll just kind of work our way down. Maybe we will. I mean, like, what do you think of, like, NBA All-Star Challenge at 102 against this? So NBA All-Star Challenge is kind of a strange game. That's that's kind of a minigame collection, basically. It's, some of those minigames are better than others. I do think that a few of those minigames are successful enough that I might actually give it the edge on Qbert 3, just because I don't think that it's doing everything that it's doing in a way that makes it as unenjoyable to play as Qbert 3 sometimes is for me. So I may actually put this one below that, but I have to say, I think that right below that is a game we might think is, is a little bit too janky to, to make the same argument with. Yeah, and that game would be uh, Chester Cheetah Too Cool to Fool at 103. Really quick, I want to apologize in advance, everyone. They're doing some major construction to the road by my house, and my house is currently shaking, so hopefully that won't bleed through into the mic too much today, but uh, if it does, there's not much I can do about it. So I think they are going to be out there all weekend because they've completely closed the intersection. It's podcasting. It is what it is. Uh, we cannot guarantee that you know, there there isn't going to be something like that happening. As a very young Darth Vader would say, that's podcasting, baby. That's what he said, right? Yep, you got it. That's exactly right. All right, so we've got Chester Cheetah, Too Cool to Fool. You know, okay, so I mean, obviously I am a pretty anti-capitalist sort of person, as uh, some of you may have gathered from <laughs> some of the rants that we've gone on on our uh, Let's Get Serious segments. There's something so unabashedly shamelessly capitalistic about a freaking junk food mascot in this janky ass platform game that I almost kind of respect that they had the gall to do it in a way, you know, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's enough for me to say that it's a better game than Qbert three. I mean, the big thing also is that Chester Cheetah is just not that great of a game. Like I respect that it's got some, 
different things going on in each of its levels. You know, it's more than just here is a vague approximation of a character in sprite art. And here are some platforms floating in space that you have to move from move between to get to the end of the level. There's concepts here. There's all the stuff with the big, like kind of sewer system under the first level. There's, you know, the thing in the second level where you have to get the monkey to follow you. Those are good ideas, but none of them work very well. And Chester himself is kind of miserable to actually control. That seems like a flaw with the game. That doesn't seem like, oh, these are just game mechanics I'm not a fan of. It feels like here are some things that they did, but did kind of poorly. I think it sounds like this is going to be our new 103. We're going to move Qbert up six spots to 103. That's where I'm coming down on this. Cubert uh, 3. Now, with the other two, it's right in this chunk here where we've got Super Smash TV, Super Double Dragon, and Rampart, uh, 50 through 52. Now, Super Double Dragon is one we've already kind of reevaluated at the request of Trevor from the Catching Up on Cinema podcast when he was a guest. I kind of don't want to leave Super Double Dragon behind. I propose that we take all three of these games and we move them as a chunk a few spots up the list. How would you feel about that? That isn't interesting idea and i think it's one that i can get behind in reevaluating super double dragon we ultimately slotted it between these two games and i think it is fair that if we reevaluate both of those games then this game can kind of move with them like we can sort of treat them as a unit i wouldn't feel like a gnawing pit in my stomach if super double dragon moved up a few spots so uh i'm good i'm good with this yeah and also before we move these i want to propose one other quick change what if we change the positions of super smash tv and rampart Mm, yeah i have an issue with super smash tv super smash tv is really really stupid fun but those boss fights they're too long yeah they bring this game to a halt and they made those bosses poorly they did a bad job the the bosses should not have dragged the game down like they did i don't know if that changes significantly with a second player but seeing as how your regular weapons don't affect it and you have to wait for the pickups to pop in the right place I suspect that not really. Like, maybe it's a little bit faster just because you got two people firing on them, but I I don't know. Those bosses, to me, feel very much like an unaltered part of the arcade game's design, to the point where, you know, this feels like the bit of the game that was designed to eat your quarters. And that is not a thing we like to see in these home ports uh, for the Super Nintendo. We like to see these things rethought to uh, work appropriately on uh, a home console where you pay once for the game and then the game itself should be fun enough to carry the experience. I agree. And I think that Rampart, you know, the design is is very solid and it does not resort to those kind of tactics, uh, even in single player. So, yeah, I, I agree. Okay. So now our order is Rampart, Super Double Dragon, Super Smash TV, 50 through 52, but we're going to start moving them up. And the, the first place that I can see, I could definitely see all three of these games going above Draken at number 47. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. I think we were a little generous to Draken just due to the fact that it was a very unique thing for the Super Nintendo. It came very early in the Super Nintendo's lifespan. Yes, that too. Once again, we've got Imperium, which is a game that I struggle to remember. And I think we've had this problem before and it's always baffling to us because it's so high on our list. 
This is the shooter with the Gundam, I think, right? Yeah, I think that you're right. Imperium is the game there where you are piloting essentially a Gundam. Uh, you yes. know, a, a one off-brand Gundam, basically. Pretty solid game, but I think over time it's become clear that game's really not that memorable. So I I think these games probably should go above that one, too. I'm going to say that I don't think they go above Rival Turf. I think the big question is going to be maybe Pushover which is a game I think I liked more than you did. So I'm going to I'm gonna leave it to you. Do you think that these games should go above Pushover? Yes, I think they should go above Pushover because we played Pushover pretty recently. I didn't love it. Uh, I respected kind of the fact that it was trying to do something different with its puzzle design, but I didn't really enjoy it that much. And upon going back to Rampart and Super Smash TV... I would rather play either of those games instead of Pushover. I might make a, a slight argument for in favor of Pushover, but honestly, I think once I had a chance to play any of these with a second player, I think any lukewarm argument that I might have had would probably go out the window. So yeah, I think I'm good with this. And unless you think there's an argument for any of these going above Rival Turf. No, I, I don't think there's an argument for that. I like Rival Turf, and I think that Rival Turf holds up favorably against these. Probably not the huge shift that, that they might have wanted, but Rampart and Super Smash TV are now in the 40s instead of the 50s, which again, on a list that's well over 100 entries long at this point, that ain't bad. Yeah, I think it is also appropriate and meaningful that they have now moved up above Draken, which I think has been, you know, a game that that has sort of been protected on this list in ways it maybe didn't entirely deserve just by how early and how unusual of a game it was for the Super Nintendo. Note to any potential future guests, if you want to make the case that Draken goes even lower than that, you probably won't have to twist our arm too much to make that happen, so... Just going to throw that out there. You might be able to pretty successfully shoot your shot there. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, it is time to get into our sub and we're going to uh, defect to the United States. This is my Sean Connery voice. Wow. Masterful, I know. That's really good. I thought he was in the room with us. Right, so we are talking about The Hunt for Red October, released in January of 1993, as best we can tell. This one by High Tech Expressions, and uh, this is the first time we've talked about them, I think. So we're going to go into that a little bit. Uh, I am not going to go too much into The Hunt for Red October or Tom Clancy, except to say Tom Clancy is whole <laughs> Tom Clancy. Boy, I'm using up a lot of spin jumps early to talk about Tom Clancy, but... You know, it's it's Tom Clancy. I think it's deserved. I think it's fair. He put out a bunch of really toxic ideas, and, you know, his particular fan base definitely ate those up. I will say The Hunt for Red October, I haven't read that book, but I have seen the movie. The movie's fine. It's a well-made submarine thriller action adventure movie. It is probably uncomfortable to watch in the same way that a lot of big mainstream American media from that time period is, but it is not especially so. And Sean Connery and Sam Neill, really good in that movie. So that's all I've got to say about about that one. Yeah, so I have uh, significantly more to say about high-tech expressions. A lot of the info for the history of high-tech expressions I'm getting from a really great video by YouTuber LGR, uh, which I believe stands for Lazy Game Reviews. His video, LGR Tech Tales High-Tech Expressions from Christmas to Capcom, 
is the video that I got a lot of this info from. So if you want to learn more about them, I would suggest starting there. He's got a pretty good work cited area in the description for the video as well. So the origins of high-tech expressions can be traced back to Coconut Grove, Florida in 1984 as Thoughtware, which was founded by Jack Levine. The company sold some software packages for business people that I guess tell them how to business harder or better. Like, hey, do you have trouble defining your goals and objectives or managing your time effectively? Well, Thoughtware has software for each of those problems, and they're only going to cost you 450 bucks a pop. Okay, so I, I am not a businessman who spends his days at the business factories doing whatever business people do. So maybe I'm out of line making a statement like this. But this is basically businessman acceptable overpriced new age self-help seminars, right? I would think so, yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of that stuff, but there was a particular fad for it in that time period. See also the remarkable, remarkable book, Power Lunching, that I, I recommend everybody learn about because it is, is one of the weirdest pieces of, of exactly what you're talking about there that I've ever I've ever seen. This is crap for people who will roll their eyes at some guru offering to realign their chakras, and I mean, rightfully so, but they'll pay twice the price for some piece of software if you just call it like productivity solutions for the new mindful executive or something. So anyway, sorry, I, I digress. <laughs> At some point, a few folks on the team got the green light to distribute a fun software greeting card to the employees of the company for the holidays. And they loved it so much that they ended up making a commercially available version of that digital holiday card with a feature that allowed the users to make and print their own holiday greeting cards in 1985, which is around the time that the print shop software would have been out and costing quite a lot of money. But the price on this piece of software, limited as it was, was only about 10 bucks, making it incredibly popular. So yeah, affordable software with a discernible purpose. Amazing, right? Who would have thought that that would have outsold their weird digital business acumen acupuncture. So the company kept making those the following holiday season, and eventually this caused them to just spin out a completely new division selling similar software packages. Uh, Thoughtware Expressions would produce more print shop-like software, greeting card makers and the like, and as those software packages saw diminishing returns, the company decided to branch out into other types of software and rebranded once again as high-tech expressions, which would soon find success publishing ports of existing software to other platforms, and the uh, rest of Thoughtware just kind of shriveled up by that point. Uh, I tried finding out a little bit more about Jack Levine, finding out like if he stayed on with the company at this point, but I couldn't find any articles that referred to him post-Thoughtware, so... I have no idea. Uh, in any case, educational software and software featuring beloved franchises aimed at kids would be high-tech's bread and butter. Some of their earliest credits involve ports of Sesame Street ABC and Sesame Street 123. They also published versions of Disney games on computers and even distributed a version of Ninja Gaiden for DOS. All right, okay. Most of those games were developed by other companies and just published by high-tech expressions, but high-tech decided to make their first stab at game software in-house with the somewhat infamous DOS version of Mega Man. Oh, no! Yeah, you're familiar with this one? I am very familiar with this one. It is something else. Uh, the way that I suspect many people in modern times will have seen this is on various Games Done Quick marathons, where this is a frequent star of the uh, the awful games block. 
Deservedly so. It is an incredible piece of, of software in the sense that uh, you take something as, as sort of uh, a design as sort of pure and rock solid as Mega Man, and it's like Aliens recreated it very quickly without understanding anything about why the original game was was fun. Yeah, did you ever play this game? You know what? I have to admit, I have never actually had had hands-on time with this game. I played this game back in the day. This thing was available, I think, via... Do you remember those little things that they would hand out in elementary schools? They were just, like, on really cheap paper. It would be, like, a little pamphlet with, like, various books and videos that you could order. Yeah, sure. I remember those. This was available via one of those things and that is how i think i got this game back in the day oh man yeah if you aren't familiar with this 1990s mega man for computers was a completely original game featuring three original bosses and new levels it didn't function very well and i can personally attest to that the game was built pretty much from the ground up by a single person uh steven j rosner and this game was bafflingly given Capcom's official license. And even more bafflingly, Capcom allowed Rosner and Hitech another stab at the Mega Man franchise two years later when they released a sequel, which also bafflingly was just called Mega Man 3. (laughs) (laughs) No Mega Man 2. Don't worry about that. Did it have, like, boss designs from Mega Man 3 or or something? From what I remember, this this game has completely original bosses, right? A lot of the artwork for the boss portraits from the select screen were obviously just taken straight from other Mega Man games and reworked. But I think it was just called Mega Man 3 simply because Mega Man 3 was the game that everybody was more familiar with by that point. Or that, you know, maybe that was the most recently released Mega Man game that had come out. I don't know. But in any case, high tech sort of gained a reputation for creating cheap software and publishing licensed titles, and that could only sustain them for so long. By the mid 90s, things were not going so well, and it would seem that the company ran out of money sometime in 1994 as games like Barbie Vacation Adventure would get canceled despite getting complete reviews in Nintendo Power Magazine. We will get to that someday. Similarly, the seemingly completed game based on the Bobby's World cartoon also failed to get an actual release as the company no longer had the funds to put the game on shelves. And that was pretty much it for High Tech Expressions. They just kind of rode that wave as long as they could. I do really want to have uh, a reason to revisit some of those canceled games at some point. We'll probably do that. I I don't know when or what form that will take, but I do really want to talk about canceled games that are available in ROM form for the SNES um, on this podcast at some point. I'm sure we will find a way to do that because I I also think that is something we should do. And that is not just some kind of like, you know, historical curio. Uh, Those are those are real games that exist. Really quick, uh, just about the developer of this particular game, The Hunt for Red October, in case you forgot. (laughs) uh, (laughs) This game was developed by frequent high tech collaborator. Riedel, Rydell, not sure, Software Productions, sometimes just called RSP. This company was founded by Michael Rydell, or Riedel, who would later end up at Running With Scissors, which is the company that made the highly controversial series Postal, and nothing else as far as I can tell. It's impressive. Postal is still controversial, even now. A lot of games from back then that had a reputation for that. You know, your Mortal Kombats, your Night Traps. Those are all seen as, like, you know, very quaint and harmless. Uh, Postal, still genuinely 
making people uncomfortable, uh, rightly so, making people uncomfortable here in, in 2020. I'm glad we'll never have to talk about a postal game in depth. Me too. Me too. I do not want to do that. No. Anyway, uh, there isn't a whole lot else about RSP out there. I imagine they just kind of sort of stopped existing after the guy who the company was named for left them. And uh, with that, let's finally talk about the Hunt for Red October on Super NES. This is a kind of side-scroller, except it doesn't auto-scroll. It's a shooter, yeah. It's it's a shooter, but it doesn't auto-scroll. Yeah, it's a little bit shooter, it's a little bit side-scroller. It's, it's a little bit of both of those things. So yeah, you are controlling the, you know, titular Red October submarine in various side-scrolling levels where you are moving from, I think, always left to right? Is that correct? I think you're pretty much always going left to right. I mean, you can change direction and go back. You can, yeah, but but the progression of the level forward is is that and you are beset by various other submarines uh ships on the surface and occasionally sea creatures that you have to shoot uh or maneuver past with uh the red october's various weapons you have you know missiles you can shoot out in front uh things that you can shoot up above you and i guess essentially bombs that you can drop on stuff below you only have one life but you have a considerable amount of health in this game uh there's a little readout screen on the bottom of the screen that shows the various parts of the of the ship that can take damage. You know, you you really do have to give it kind of a lot of punishment before before you die in this game. That being said, it is a fairly challenging game. Uh, I don't personally feel like there's a ton of progression in this game from what I've been able to see as far as like the game adding challenge. The the game does have escort missions later on. Which is, you know, you never like to see those in games. but Not really, no. At least there's no friendly fire on the boat that you're protecting, which is good. You know, I'll say, like, I bounced off of this pretty quick the first time I played it. And I think it was because I was over-relying on just the standard torpedoes that shoot out in front of you. But yeah. your sub is armed to the teeth. You've got, like you were saying, the, the surface-to-air missiles, which just shoot straight up, which is good for taking out boats that are at the, you know, just kind of floating on top of the water or planes or helicopters that are firing on you. You've got surface-to-surface missiles, which just kind of shoot in an arc that goes slightly over you, which is kind of nice for taking out subs without getting directly in their line of fire. Um, Those are a little bit trickier to use and seem almost like exclusively made to take out the bosses at the end of certain levels, which just come in the form of like Uh bases that are not in the water that you have to destroy. One time it's a giant squid. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) Really? Yeah. At one point in the game, you fight this giant green squid. I did not know about that part. (laughs) Aside from just amping up the amount of stuff that is trying to kill you, this game doesn't take a tremendous amount of artistic license as far as the basic concept of this goes. It does there, and it's really weird to see. Well, Well, actually, the game takes quite a bit of artistic license because by the time you're done with the first level you've basically played out the plot of the movie and book that's true actually yeah i sort of meant that mostly you're just firing at other submarines and military aircraft and stuff but yes you're right in terms of literally artistic license this game takes a tremendous amount to turn what is not actually a a super action heavy story into a kind of relentless shooter yeah i mean you almost wonder if 
they just tacked on the Hunt for Red October license to this as a way of just, you know, getting eyeballs on it. Oh, I think that's extraordinarily possible. But then again, I mean, like, high tech was kind of known for, like, just snapping up licenses and putting stuff out there based on them. So True, yeah. true. I don't know. It could have been either or. game's all right once you get a handle on all the different weapons that you've got. I was having, you know, a real problem with ammo at first because, again, I was relying on just, like, the standard torpedo that shoots out in front of you. But yeah. once I kind of got over that, ammo was never really a problem. I was never running out of anything. There's also, like, some other special equipment that you've got on board that I didn't really use a lot. I guess there's some kind of device that like causes all the other subs in the area to lose you and you can almost slip through in a more stealthy kind of way the caterpillar drive that's the big thing that the ship in the movie has that is uh, allows it to run silent so that's something that does relate to a thing in in the story that this is adapting yeah i didn't find it useful personally like ever but you know that feels like a thing that is in this game because it was in the movie yeah a hundred percent for sure they've got to fight giant squids which that that one i didn't even know about but in some of the other levels like you're fighting these really sophisticated looking underwater robots and i'm just like okay i understand like you have to make this a video game but i want to read the part of the book where tom clancy wrote and then a giant bipedal robot under the water started attacking him and sean connery was like oh no (laughs) i'm assuming that tom clancy actually wrote the book to be a sean connery vehicle you want your book to get made into a movie make it very clear that the character is sean connor i mean like if i were going to write a novel i would just start out by saying the protagonist looks something like liam neeson if he's available liam neeson or in the right light gerard butler (laughs) oh there you go and he sang so beautifully (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway what are we talking about again something about submarines the hunt for red october that's right yeah this one's okay is a shooter i think it's better than most but that's mostly because it's not really a shooter i felt like i had a little more control over it than that it is trying to do a little bit of a different thing than just being a scrolling shooter and i like the idea that you have all these different weapons and that the ship can take a lot of damage um i keep saying ship is that even right it's a submarine the sub can take a lot of damage like i was saying before i don't really feel like from what i played of the game there's a lot of variety between the different levels you know of course you do get different backgrounds eventually and different enemies that you're fighting but i feel like the overall flow of of the individual levels never really changes that much so it does get a little monotonous but it's not bad there are some super scope bonus levels where you go into essentially like a shooting gallery mode i was not able to do those because i don't have the super scope features set up for my very legitimate mechanism i have for playing these games yeah it doesn't require the super scope you can just use the d-pad to move the reticle on the screen but it moves so slowly that it really just becomes an exercise in remembering what each aircraft is going to do how it's going to behave so that you can anticipate where it's going to be rather than just trying to follow it and shoot it i think a lot of those are optional so yeah do you want to go to the list i feel like i've pretty much said everything i have to say about this one i think we can i'm, I'm kind of looking around you know like the the middle ish here which i'm not even sure that that would oh, that's not even the middle anymore but you know i'm just kind of looking for something else that, that just kind of made me think like okay this is fine but it's not amazing firepower 2000 kind of jumps out at me as maybe a good place to start but i think this is going to go down from there 
I agree, but I do think that's a solid place to start. I liked Firepower 2000's ambition it had, at least, to have two very different ways of playing it. Yeah, I don't think this game's as ambitious as that, and I don't really think it's as fun to play. So I would go down from there. Um, Going further down, I'm feeling like... So what what do you think about, if we look a little further down, the kind of group of games where we've got Spider-Man and the X-Men, Arcade's Revenge, Lagoon, Pro Quarterback, and Lethal Weapon? I feel like this fits somewhere in there. I definitely think I like this more than Lethal Weapon. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm a little shocked Lethal Weapon's as high as it is. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of surprised by that, too. I don't have a lot of really positive feelings about that game. Oh, well. um, Again, future guests, if you want to make a case that Lethal Weapon should be lower, go for it. I don't think I would put this above Spider-Man and the X-Men. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I had more fun with that game, even though that game's sort of weirdly piecemeal. There are parts of it that I find pretty fun. Lagoon is maybe the sticking point for me. Like, I would probably put this above Pro Quarterback, just mostly because it's one of the football games, and I don't remember which one. Yeah, you know, I think I would I would be happy to put this below Lagoon, even though it's like a weirdly flawed port of of a game. It's it's got enough fun that can be had with it and i i think that game design is just a little more expansive than this like i think that it encompasses more and does more better than um, the hunt for red october okay so are we gonna make the hunt for red october our new number 66 yeah that sounds pretty good to me and hey this is our first episode of october so it's kind of themed for that too it's you know hey yeah how about that this is it's october now so you know we're doing the hunt for red october because, you know, the game was all about, you know, fall weather and... The the leaves changing, the smell of hot cider, pumpkins, all of those things in this game. So there we go. That's the Hunt for Red October. So let's uh, get out of our submarine. Uh, watch out for the bends. That actually does remind me, I do kind of like the game over screen for this game. Everybody just kind of like abandoning the sub underwater and some people just floating out, presumably because they are dead. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to, uh, to something a little bit, a little bit more old fashioned, let's say, uh, a, a, a vessel that's, uh, not, not quite as modern as the Red October. sale from Portugal in uh, Uncharted Waters. It's a Koei game. It sure is one of those. We've uh, we've talked about Koei quite a bit, so I don't know if I need to go into the history of that all that much. Although, a few interesting things about Uncharted Waters. Uh, we are going to get a sequel to this one on the SNES, so we'll be talking about it. This got a third sequel in 2004 as an online game, Uncharted Waters Online, which... I believe you can still play online to this very day. That's correct. And uh, actually, even more recently, a new numbered entry in the Uncharted Waters series came out for mobile phones. So, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, in like 2019. Wow. So this is actually still a going concern. And I, I think that essentially these games all feature fairly similar gameplay. Uh, These are games that are all about the fantasy of owning and running a either like a merchant ship or or if you choose so uh, a pirate ship and and kind of a a merchant or or piracy empire in the 1700s basically. Am I right about that 1700s? I feel like maybe a little earlier than that. 
<laughs> we were way off on this one. It was the 1500s. The 1500s. But in any case, uh, in this game, you play as Leon Franco, or whatever you decide to name the character. And uh, he, as we learn from the opening exposition dump, is the son of who used to be a, a prominent merchant in Portugal. However, uh, their family fell on hard times, which culminated in his father being lost at sea during uh, an expedition or I guess during some sort of journey, presumably to, to sell something somewhere. And the only survivor of that shipwreck was a, a character who is never given a name, oddly enough, who's only called the Old Sailor, who starts out as your first mate. And he tells you your father's last words were, never give up your dreams, which, which is good, because I guess, you know, Leon was just about to give up all of his dreams the day before. But then the Old Sailor emerged and said, hey, your dad said, don't do that, and then died. And he was like, okay, well, I guess I, guess I won't give up on all of my dreams now then i was about to do that but i won't and conveniently leon's dreams were pretty much to do the same thing his father did yeah and restore their family name uh we also learned that he he kind of is crushing on the portuguese princess which i am assuming will come into play at some point in the game i i'll just be straight up i didn't get very far into this game like a lot of the koei games we've played I will probably be talking about it longer than I actually played it over multiple play sessions. I will say this. I've watched some videos on this. I enjoyed watching people enthusiastically explain why they like this game. I watched like the first episode of a Let's Play. I watched somebody sort of explain, you know, like the best way to, to open the game. You know, the, the best things to do is you're just getting started because the game itself has no interest in telling you any of that. <laughs> um, the game is pretty much just leaving you up to your own devices. Yeah, it dumps you into a thing with a lot of options and a lot of, you know, systems to kind of manipulate right away with no explanation of any of that. It's just like, here you are in a town. Do you want to trade, hire people, change, you know, the values of, of various things, get get supplies for your ship? Or do you just want to sail out? Uh, and, you know, no real indication of what you should actually do to start off here. Yeah, not really a good idea of what your objectives should be. A lot of the people who really enjoyed this game and, and played it on Let's Plays were kind of talking about how early on it's good to just kind of get into a loop where... You find a place where you can buy a certain thing for pretty cheap and then, you know, find another port where you can sell it for more money and kind of build up your, your coffers that way so that you can start investing in more and better ships, which is cool. Um, there's also a thing where if you sell too much of a thing at a certain port, you can actually affect the economy of that port. Drive down the value. Yeah. I mean, first of all, by buying things at a certain port, you can actually just improve the economy of that country, which could be a problem if you're in, say... Uh, a, a port off of, I think it's like either the Ottoman Empire or Spain, maybe France, Spain, I'm wanting to say Spain, the three countries that are actually in play are Portugal, Spain, and the Ottoman Empire, I, th I think maybe they just call it Turkey, I'm not sure. But if you spend a lot of money at a port in one of those three countries, you'll improve the economy of that country or affect the economy of that country, which can be a problem if that isn't your country. <laughs> um, I don't know if you get like the option to like defect to another country at some point. I don't think you do. But there's that. There's also just you can affect the economy of a place by selling them too much of a thing. And then that will reduce the price that that product will be in the future. You can use that to your advantage in some respects. Like you could go back to a place and rebuy a thing that you sold them that now for a much cheaper price. 
there is a lot of depth here and there's a lot of mechanics here. There's the economy. There are like ship to ship battles. You can encounter pirates. You can, I think, become a pirate. So there is a lot going on, but the game just doesn't do a good job of introducing you to all of that. Nah, it just throws you in the soup right away. I had more fun watching somebody with a real enthusiasm for this sort of game play it than I did even trying to engage with it myself. Yeah, I mean, I think even more than the other Koei games we've we've played, this one, you know, there's a very little sense of, like, what the shape of this game is from the start. Which I think in some ways is kind of a cool thing. I think that that gives this game more reason to be a video game. Something that, that I was kind of thinking about as I was writing about this game was I could have seen the previous two Koei games that we've looked at, uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Gym Fire, just being board games and maybe yeah they would have been better as board games than as video games yeah they do feel very much like tabletop war games essentially the open-endedness here gives that sense of uh of possibility that i think is much easier to convey with a video game i really wish there just either wasn't so much going on or that a lot of that stuff was more transparent to a newcomer like for example the fact that there are a whole bunch of other ports, most of those ports will be invisible until you actually look for them. That's not really obvious just from the outset. Like, you might assume that you would just see another port on the map as you sail by it. But that isn't the case for most of them. I did want to just go out and start sailing and just, you know, look around and explore this game's world. Even that was really frustrating because as I got into the boat, I realized, oh, you just kind of set a direction and the boat just goes and it doesn't stop going in that direction until you stop it and pick a new direction which right yeah like okay i kind of get these are all ships that are being powered by sails and the wind and everything but this is still a video game like you can still just let me control the ship more directly and i'm gonna have a better time with it like let me explore if you're not gonna tell me what to do at least give me the means to figure that out more easily on my own, and I don't even feel like the game does that well. I'm gonna just say straight up that, like, I didn't find this game any fun. This game did not entice me to its possibilities at all. It just sort of plopped me down with a ton of you know, essentially like spreadsheets to go through and uh, no real sense of direction. And um, yeah, I'm willing to bet there is a ton of depth here. And it, it probably is fun if you know what you're doing and want the fantasy this game is selling enough to to kind of get into that. But for me, at least, yeah, I... I, I, I didn't find anything enjoyable about the actual act of playing with this game or interacting with it. What frustrates me about this one is that this one does, again, as a video game, feel like it has the most potential of any of these Koei games that we've really, you know, tried diving into and bounced off of. This feels like the one that could have hooked me. If there were just quality of life improvements here that you would find in, you know, more modern games, this could have been the one that... that actually got me to enjoy this sort of gameplay and the fact that it is so user unfriendly at the outset i worry that maybe that kept a lot of people from finding what could have been a thing they really liked back in the day and and that's disappointing to me because there's a lot of potential here for sure but i really think this game as it is capitalizes on practically any of that <laughs> 
There's some things that are good here. I appreciate the fact that all of the ports have a similar layout, so the game kind of gives you a visual language of, okay, you know what a port is now because you explored one port. You know how ports work now. You know what you can do in each of the various buildings and where they're going to be because they're all laid out exactly the same. Right, yeah. That is a step in the right direction. That's Koei starting to figure out how you do this in a way that is going to be more accessible to folks. But yeah, it's still just not there yet. I will be curious to see what the sequel ends up adding to this. Yeah, me too. I worry that maybe the sequel just adds more stuff to do and more mechanics without actually disambiguating what you're supposed to be doing. Entirely possible. You know, I'm going to say I probably liked Gemfire more than this. Because at least there, like, you know, there was a narrative layer that this doesn't quite have the same way. And I think that game, because it was it was dealing with a somewhat more simplified version of, like, the Koei strategy game setup, helped me make some sense of it in a way that this one doesn't really. But I think there is a lot of potential here. I mean, this game does have, you know, a lot of narrative and stuff. It's just that it dropped on you at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it, it does have narrative, but it doesn't have anything quite as structured as the different campaigns that Gemfire did. You know, that's still not very much when it comes to that game. But the sense that, like, you had these different characters and, like, each one of them had, like, an objective that you were trying to fulfill by engaging with the strategy gameplay... There's a lack of narrative structure, I think, that actually works in its favor because you can kind of decide what that's going to be. It's the lack of mechanical structure where, like, right. the game doesn't do a good job of telling you what you're supposed to be doing or how you're supposed to be doing a thing. Right. That's more what I'm getting at here. Having those campaigns set up the way they were in Gemfire gave me a sense of, like, all right, here are the parts of the gameplay that I need to be engaging with first, second, and third in order to move forward in this scenario they've set up. Here, I feel like it's more just like, all right, here are a bunch of things and a very general objective somewhere way, way far away. What do you want to do? And it's just like, I don't know. I guess I'm going to buy some water and some, some supplies for the ship, and then I'm going to head out and try to find a port. Does that sound good? Yeah, sure, you can do that. Yeah, I think what this game needed was a first very specifically defined mission and then give the player the freedom to make their own destiny after that. What if this game opened with you playing as the character's father fighting pirates? Like the game immediately drops you into an action sequence. So it immediately hooks. It is telling you the story in a more interactive way. And it's giving you like a little taste of what's to come. So, you know, you go through that encounter. The game takes control away. The, a storm sinks the vessel. The old sailor is the only survivor. And the old sailor gives you a specific final mission. Oh, like maybe like completing your dad's last mission. Yeah, no, that would make sense. That would be a great way to start this game. Koei, I'm available. Hire Steampunk Link to make a new version of the original Uncharted Waters 30 years after the, the original game came out that, that fixes this, this sort of unfriendly front end the game has. Please. All right. So I guess we need to rank this one. We might have a bit of a split decision here, actually. Yeah, I mean, let's just get right into it then. Let's start with Gemfire at number 100 and figure out, um, does this belong above or below it? Because I, I do think that this game belongs above Gemfire. I think that the premise is a little bit more interesting to me, and I think that the open-ended nature of the gameplay, it, it, it fascinates me more. Like, Gemfire is frustrating 
but also like it's not interesting to me and so I don't even care to learn like uncharted waters I'm disappointed that I couldn't get into it because I wanted to know what was going to happen. I mean, I think that's totally fair and I think that this one moves further away from the kind of like I guess like the platonic ideal of of the Koei game that Romance of the Three Kingdoms represents. So I I do appreciate that cuz Gemfire really was like let's take those mechanics and put them in sort of a slightly more RPG-ish mold. That appeals to me a little bit more, but also it's not as creative as this sort of open-ended Age of Discovery merchant trader sim that Uncharted Waters is. So I actually can give it some real points for that. Like you, I am I am just kind of frustrated that this game that I, to me is very appealing, like the concept of it is very appealing, does not really invite me in in the way that I would want it to. I, I could probably still go up from Gemfire based on that, but, you know, like, I do think that for me personally, I probably had an easier way into Gemfire, which definitely helped in that game's favor. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this game does have a fan base. The Koei has gone back to it, and people have enthusiastically talked about it on YouTube. There's clearly something here. And uh, I, I think that's that's good to know that, like, this isn't just like the illusion of depth. There is actually something under the surface here that people have connected to. Yeah. And I would say if you've got the patience for sort of unraveling those kinds of game mechanics or you know just the time to watch some videos to kind of prime yourself to be able to do that or or some walkthroughs or whatever i think you're probably going to have a better time with this than you would gemfire i mean you know depending on the kind of gamer you are i guess but i think i would more easily be able to recommend uncharted waters i could almost see this going as high as say number 92 above d force but i think you're going to push back on that a little bit and i'm I'm totally willing to hear that d force is definitely kind of on the low end as far as you know the the type of game it represents but it's tough i have to admit because d force i think has been roundly bested by many other games of its type Whereas there's very little to actually compare Uncharted Waters to. Even in the other, like, simulation-type stuff, you know, your Sim Cities and, uh, you know, Populous and all those things. That th- those and coming soon, Aerobiz. And coming soon, another Koei Jam Aerobiz. In that sense, it's it's very hard to say, oh, well, you know these ideas have been done better elsewhere because many of these ideas have not been done at all elsewhere. I, I think that D-Force is the first one of these that we have on the list here where like, I genuinely did have a bit of fun playing it in a way that I just had no fun at all with Uncharted Waters. So just based on the understanding that probably this is a way better game if you can get into it, given that, maybe I'd give it the edge over D force, but otherwise I would put it kind of right below. Okay. I'm, I'm okay with it going below D force. I would maybe make a stronger argument against it going below monopoly. Since I do think that this, I wouldn't, or no, or yeah, no, 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 I wouldn't make that argument. Um, no, I was confusing this with clue. Actually clue is the one that's got like a, a like, frankly, broken mechanics for what Clue should be on the Super Nintendo version. The the version of Monopoly is fine. It's fine, but that's more or less all I can say about it. Yeah, and I I don't know why you would ever play Monopoly on a SNES over just playing a game of Monopoly. And frankly, I don't know why you would play a game of Monopoly. Same, yeah. But but yeah, so I I think that that even with its sort of, like, upfront inscrutability, I would 
I would give Uncharted Waters the edge over Monopoly. Okay, so maybe we make this our new number 93? That sounds good to me. All right, so congratulations, Uncharted Waters, our new number 93. Just cracking that top 100 there. Probably more than I would have expected from a from one of these Koei Sims at this point. So Yeah, no, doing something different, that really pays off. Yeah, I feel good about that. So that... That actually does it for January 93 for the Super Nintendo. Yep, it sure does. And uh, with that, uh, I guess we will bring this episode to a close. We're going to have another Nintendo Power episode coming up. We're going to have another Playing With Power episode coming up next time because we are going to be moving into February of 1993. Uh, Not a lot came out in January 93, but uh, I'm looking forward to talking about another Nintendo Power issue because I had a blast doing that last time. So did I. I had a great time. Uh, I'm ready to do it again. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what what treasures we will uncover from February 93, Nintendo Power. I guess, uh, did you have anything for the Getting Serious segment for today? I don't have a whole lot. Uh, some stuff happened in America in the last couple of days. We're we're now sitting at uh, uh, October October 3rd, the first weekend in October. And, you know, there's been some some pretty big news in in the country uh in in the last couple of days and i just want to say that my personal feeling is that you do not have to feel required to have empathy for people that have done nothing but wish you and people like you ill so that's all i'm gonna say you know what i'm gonna actually go even further with that i am going to say that the kinds of people who are going to tone police right now about, you know, how you shouldn't wish ill on other people are the exact kind of people who would show no such decorum against people that they don't like, against their enemies. They threw decorum out the window a long time ago. They do not get to hide behind it now. Um, anybody on our side telling you, you know, tone policing you has probably not had to suffer in the same way that a lot of less prominent people have. I'm completely with you there, and I will be even harsher about it if need be. And also, hey, Twitter comms telling everybody that, uh, hey, when you wish death or whatever upon somebody, you're going to get banned. Uh, that literally happens to a bunch of people every single day, and you don't do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, every day, and you do nothing about it. So There we go. There we go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know what? I think we can leave it at that for now. I think we can, yeah. All right, everybody. Um, we hope you guys had a, a pretty good week. We're, we're sorry we had to be gone so long. We've missed you a lot. I've, I've missed being here and doing this, but we really appreciate all of you who are coming back and, and listening again. Uh, we're going to try and keep this going as long as we can because I'm, I am I just love doing this. I just love doing this. Me too. Me too. This is uh, one of my the highlights of my week. And uh, yeah, we, we hope that you join us as we venture further into 93. All right, folks, thank you all very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We will see you next time. Until then, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.